Welcome to the Center Ranch Church Weekly Podcast. We believe that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. I don't know if, if you have anything in your life that is like the way you do it, you know that's the right way to do it. And when you see other people do it and they do it differently than the way that you do it, you judge them, right? And you think, what are you doing? That's not the way that you do it. And it, it could be any number of things. It could be making a sandwich. It could be making a cup of coffee. It could be working on the car. It could be, uh, you, you know, all, all kinds of different things. But there's certain things that we have that you know you've developed the perfect technique for it and your way is the right way and you see other people do it. What, what, what is this guy doing? Doesn't he, doesn't he know how to make a cup of coffee? Why, why would you do it like that? Well, how foolish to go, right? You've got stuff like that, right? I don't know if anything particularly comes to mind. One of those things for me that I know I have the right way is how to properly eat a peanut butter blossom cookie. Familiar with the peanut butter blossom? You might call it something different. A peanut butter cookie with a Hershey kiss in the middle. Are you familiar with this cookie? If you're not, you need to get familiar with this cookie. This is, this is a, great, a great cookie. And you're, you're listening to someone share from an area of expertise. I've developed the best way to consume a peanut butter blossom cookie. And, and when I watch other people eat it and eat it improperly, it genuinely irritates me. I, I wish I was kidding, but I, I'm, I'm, being, I'm, I'm just being completely honest with you. You can ask my family. Uh, I've spent a lot of time, I've consumed a lot of cookies, uh, like hours and hours in the laboratory working on my technique, and I've developed, here, here's, how, here's how you properly do it. You hold the, uh, the peanut butter rim, the perimeter, whatever you want to call that. Or you, you, you hold that, and you eat your way around and then you leave yourself a little peanut butter handle with the Hershey Kiss still positioned on its pedestal in the middle. And then you pop all of that in your mouth at once as the grand finale. And what that does is, is it swings your palate clear to the peanut butter end of the spectrum because it's one peanut butter bite after another peanut butter. It's just nothing but peanut butter. One, two, three, you're eating around the edge. And after your taste buds and your, your palate is way on that end, then you hit it with a Hershey kiss at the end. You swing it back the other way. It's like a roller coaster ride for your mouth. I mean, it's just like one way and then the other way. It's like, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an experience. And I know, I know that my way is the right way to eat a peanut butter blossom. And if you think I'm kidding, you go home, make yourself a batch, save me some, but you try it and, uh, and you'll report back to me and you'll be like, you know what? I, I thought you were kidding around. <laughs> it's the most beneficial thing I've ever heard you say. It, it, you're going to be blessed. You're going to be blessed by it. So we, we've all got things like that. You've got things that you know, you know my, my way of doing this is the right way. But really, we also kind of know, you know why that people can do it however they want. If that's how you want to spread peanut butter on bread, I, I think it's wrong, but if that's how you want to do it, if that's how, how you want to you know, eat a cookie, then it, it's up to you. But what if, what if there was something that you really knew there is only one way to do it? Only one way. And then you heard someone present an alternative way to accomplish the same thing that you know that there's only one way. What would you know about that alternative way? Well, you would know that it wouldn't work right? You would know that there's only one way. And so a second way presented is going to be a failure and it's not going to accomplish its objective because there's only one way. 
Today, we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is believed by some people to be the most important chapter in church history because what they're dealing with primarily is the basis of salvation and trying to get clear on what really is required in someone's life for them to be saved and how should we go about presenting the gospel when, when we present the gospel. And so we're going to look at that. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Acts chapter 15. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 14. Paul was on his first missionary journey. By the end of chapter 14, he and Barnabas have returned back to Antioch where they, where they launched out from. So they're back at kind of home base there. And so we're going to pick it up. I'm going to read a lengthy portion of scripture, but I want you to stay engaged with me. Then we'll come back and we'll talk about some of the things that we've read. So Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. It says, while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus." Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood and said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted as it is written. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen, the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All those I have called to be mine, the Lord has spoken. He who made these things known so long ago. Verse 19. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. 
For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. Then the apostles and elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria and Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Barsabbas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching. We did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm what we have decided concerning your question, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. And it goes on to talk about how they, they travel to Antioch, the people received the message, they ministered to them there, and it goes on. But the bulk of this, this chapter is dealing with, with really two things going on here. One is the relationship between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, that these people come from very different cultures and trying to bring them together as one people was causing a lot of issues. And so the instructions given in that letter primarily dealt with the, the relationships because that, that's not dealing with salvation. If you, if you never eat the blood of a strangled animal, it doesn't mean that you're saved and you're on your way to heaven. That, that has to do with their cultures coming together. But the other major issue is the basis of salvation and how the gospel is presented. And what all does someone really have to do to be saved? And I, I want to focus on that for the next, couple, the next couple of minutes. Let me read the first couple of verses again. It says, While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. So they come back to Antioch after traveling around. There, there's some people that come from Jerusalem, and they start teaching the, the church that, yes, you need to accept Jesus to be saved, but that alone isn't enough. You're not actually saved until you also become circumcised, and that's how, that's how you, you experience salvation. And it says that Paul and Barnabas began to argue with them, and that they didn't, they didn't just get annoyed by it. They didn't just roll their eyes and say, like, I, I don't know about this. It says that they argued vehemently. Another, another translation says it like this. They had no small dissension and dispute. The dissension the dispute or the debate, it says it, it wasn't a small one. This is an intense disagreement. These guys are arguing because this is a major, major issue 
Because it's talking about how somebody comes into the kingdom of God, whether somebody is saved or whether they're still on their way to hell. So they, they, they argue, they have this debate, and then they decide, well, you know what? We're going to send a group of people back to where you say this message came from, and we're going to ask them. It's that big of a deal. It'd be like if, if you and I had a disagreement and we wanted to get to the bottom of it, it was so important that this, this trip that they're talking about is about 300 miles that they'd have to walk. That if we got in an argument after church, I said, okay, well, let's walk to Philadelphia and let's get to the bottom of it, or let's walk to Buffalo. I mean, this was a major issue that they were willing to do whatever it takes to get to the, to get to the bottom of it. It's the basis of, of salvation. Is it Jesus only? Is it trusting in Jesus, believing the good news? Or is there something in, in addition to that? That's what we started off talking about. If there's only one way to do something, then when you present an alternative way, what do you know about the alternative way? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So you can be presenting something to people that if they follow it, they're not following the real way. That what hangs in the balance is whether people experience salvation, if they're in real relationship, if they're forgiven, if they're on their way to heaven or not. This, this chapter lines up very well with the book of Galatians. I'd encourage you to read Acts chapter 15 and the book of Galatians because this is a major, a major point of emphasis as Paul writes to the Galatian church. Let me read a few verses. If you want to flip over to Galatians chapter 1, we'll be back in Acts chapter 15 in a minute. Acts chapter, or I'm sorry, Galatians chapter one, verse six, it says, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Let God's curse fall on anyone, including us or even an angel from heaven, who preaches a different kind of good news than the one we preach to you. I say it again, what we have said before, if anyone preaches any other good news than the one that you welcome, let that person be accursed. This, this is serious. He says... You're, you're being preached a good news, uh, a message that pretends to be the good news, but it's not the good news at all. Well, well, what is the good news? The good news, the Bible says, it's the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God that can rescue and save to the uttermost. It's the power of God that can take someone from the kingdom of darkness and transfer, translate them into the kingdom of God's dear son. That's the good news. So if, if they're believing something that's not really the good news, it's just pretending to be the good news, then it doesn't have the ability to do any of these things at all. And what people were doing is they were adding to the gospel message that it's not just Jesus, it's also, it's also circumcision. So there, there could be a mindset of, well, I mean, these people are just going, sounds like they're going above and beyond, right? I mean, they believe in Jesus. I mean, they, they believe in Jesus. They've got the main thing down. So if they're adding circumcision, if they're adding other things, I mean, it just sounds like they're, they want to have their bases covered and, you know, better safe than sorry, right? As long as, as long as we believe in Jesus, then we all believe that if you want to add in circumcision or add in, you know, four leaf clovers or, you know, whatever it makes you feel better that you're relying on, Hey, the more the merrier, right? You could have that mindset. The problem is that the gospel is 100% trust and reliance on Jesus Christ and his finished work. And the moment you bring anything else into that, you've polluted the gospel. Now it's just something pretending to be the gospel, but it really isn't the gospel at all. 
Let, let me read a few verses from Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three, starting in verse one, he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It is because you believe the message you heard about Christ. So he's talking about what happened or didn't happen based on them following the law. And what, when he says following the law, what's really in focus as he's talking to the Galatian church is the issue of circumcision. And as we're talking about circumcision, really you can understand that as human effort relying on your flesh. Because there's very few people that are fighting the temptation to run out and get themselves circumcised. But we do feel a temptation to rely on our own effort and to rely on what I bring to the equation. And he's saying that's a dangerous place to allow yourself to get to. And he says, let, let me ask you a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit? because of the law, because of your own effort, because of your performance? No. Did you move on to perfection because of your own effort? No. Did you see miracles and the moving of the Holy Spirit because of your own effort and your performance? No. And over and over again, he says these things happened because you believed the message about Jesus. You heard the good news and you believed. Based on that and that alone is how all these other things, how these other things unfolded. By belief, by belief in Jesus, the, the good news, and that's it. When we start adding things that we try to earn, and maybe you've done this, maybe when you wanted to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or maybe it's something you still wrestle with, or you needed a, a, a breakthrough or some kind of miracle in your life, instead of just keeping your eyes on Jesus, there's a temptation that your eyes come on you and you start to examine yourself. Am I, am I qualified? Am I worthy? Man, I'd love to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How am I doing? Have I done anything naughty lately? Have I been reading my Bible? Have I been a really good boy? Have I been a, a, a good girl lately? And you're your eyes are on you. And he said, once you've done that, you've missed it because it's, it is a gift and a gift by definition. Once you start trying to qualify and earn it, it ceases being a gift. Salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit are only received by the grace of God. And once you put your effort, your performance, your worthiness, you justify, I should, I should have access to that based on, on something that I have done or I haven't done, then you've, you've tainted the whole thing and you've cut yourself off from the beauty and the simplicity of the good news. You know, Jesus uses illustrations as you read through the gospels uh, and he says things like, you can't, take, you can't take new wine and put into an old wine skin because it'll, it'll burst and you'll, you'll lose the wine. Or you know what? You can't take a, a new patch and put on an old garment because then that new patch will, will shrink and it'll end up 
tearing. And he's using these illustrations saying you, you, can, you can do things wrong. And in your effort to try, why would you put wine into a wineskin? You're trying to preserve it. You're trying to hold on to it. But you can go about it in a way that you actually, you actually squander and lose the very thing that you're trying to hold on to. Or you can try to fix a problem. Man, I've got this issue. I've got this hole in my shirt and my, my robe I want to address. I'm trying to fix a problem. But you can go about it in a way where you actually make the problem even worse. And his interest wasn't, you know, how to be a good seamstress or how to preserve preserve wine. He's talking about the old covenant based on human effort and performance and following all the right rules and regulations and the new covenant that's entirely based on the finished work of Jesus. And he gave us those illustrations multiple times because he knew the tendency in the human heart to drift towards you, to let your eyes continue to move from Jesus onto yourself and how you're doing, how are you performing, are you impressing them? And people can begin to rely on themselves. And he says, when you try to mix it, when you try to bring those things together, the, the very thing you're trying to accomplish, you're going to end up ruining it. The, the problems that you're trying to address, you're going to make the problems worse. And for some people, that describes their walk with the Lord. The tension, the pooling, the pressure that comes from new wine in an old wineskin or a new patch on an old robe. People, people have served the Lord or tried to, and their walk with the Lord is miserable. It's just striving and strain and frustration. If that describes your walk with the Lord, maybe maybe you're making that mistake and you're trying to serve Jesus, but you're doing it on, on, your, own, on your own effort. That's what's being dealt with in Acts chapter 15. You know, we do need to have disciplines in our lives. But we don't earn the love of God. We don't earn a relationship with God. It's all by faith. It's all by faith in Jesus. And so disciplines, walking in holiness and righteousness, reading your Bible, praying, all those kinds of things aren't to earn your way to the Lord, but they're to protect the faith that you have that your relationship is established with. Because you can have faith in Jesus, but there's verses that talk about people that can damage the faith that they have, and the relationship is dependent on faith. Salvation is dependent on faith. By, by faith, a righteous person has, has life. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, some people have violated their consciences, means they've done things that they know they shouldn't be doing, and as a result, they have shipwrecked their faith. You and I have the potential to do some stupid things, make dumb, selfish choices, and end up damaging damaging our faith. So our disciplines in our walk with the Lord aren't our way of earning our way to God. It's not earning relationship. It's protecting a relationship. So for example, in my relationship with my wife, I've, I've got some pretty strict guidelines when it comes to, to other women in my life. Unless it's a family member, this is my, my, one of my daughters or my mom, other than my wife, I'm never alone with another woman. Another woman. I don't ride in cars alone with another woman. I'm never in a room alone with the door shut. The door's always open. I've got those perimeters, those parameters set up not to try to earn relationship with my wife. I'm not trying to earn her love. I'm not trying to earn my way into being married to her. I, I already am. I'm trying to protect the relationship that already, that already exists. I don't come home and say, hey, I, I haven't been within 20 feet of another female today. Do you, do you love me? I've stayed so far away. I won't even look at, I'm not trying to earn her love by, that, by, by acting that way. I've set up guidelines. I've set up some disciplines in my life to protect a relationship that already exists. So, so disciplines in our walk with the Lord, it, it can be a small adjustment in the way that we look at them but it can make all the difference in the world. You're not, you don't have to earn your way. The Lord loves you. 
Your relationship is based on faith. But when we start relying on other things, that, that's when we start getting off track. What, one more passage from Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, Listen, I, Paul, tell you this. If you are counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. I'll say it again. If you are trying to find favor with God by being circumcised, you must obey every regulation in the whole law of Moses. For if you are trying to make yourselves right with God by keeping the law, you have been cut off from Christ. You have fallen away from God's grace. He's talking, if you're going to, if you're going to rely on yourself, then you need to be absolutely perfect because it's either your performance or grace. We're not mixing them uh, together. Again, he says in in verse two, I'm telling you this, if you're counting on circumcision to make you right with God, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. That's an amazing statement that a person can put themselves in a situation where Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the Holy, the Anointed One, the Risen, the Exalted One, the the, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the One who's coming again soon, the One who's seated at the right hand of the Father, the One who's going to reign forevermore, the One who has all power and all authority, that that Jesus Christ can be of no benefit in a person's life. How is that possible? By a person beginning to rely on on themselves and rely on their own effort. It says, you've been cut off from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. So this, this is a major issue and something that we need to be aware of. And that's what the early church is dealing with. Acts chapter 15. If we jump back to Acts chapter 15, so they send, they send a delegation to Jerusalem because that's where these people came from in, in the first place. And so just as a quick side note, you can see that the way way the early church operated is if you had an issue with somebody, you know what you did? You you went to the source. You went and and talked to that that person. These people came from Jerusalem. They're saying this message came from here. You guys pack your bags. Looks like we're heading to Jerusalem because we're going to go and we're going to deal with this where it came from. That can be beneficial in a number of ways in our relationships. Amen. So they go to Jerusalem. Verse five, Paul and Barnabas start talking about all the amazing things happened with with the Gentiles. It says there's some believers there that were were Pharisees. Acts 15, verse five, it says that they, they stood up and insisted that Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the whole law of Moses. They've added to it in five verses. A few verses ago, it was just circumcision. Now they're standing up and say circumcision plus, plus all the other things. We've talked about this before, but it's something we, we've got to keep on our radar. The nature of the spirit of religion is to continue adding, continue adding. You can never satisfy, never fulfill. It's always out there somewhere. Ne- you, you can never do enough to satisfy that spirit of religion. And so you've got to make sure it doesn't set up in your mind or you don't allow someone else to begin to try to inflict that on you, that it's, it's always, first it's Jesus, then it's Jesus and circumcision. A couple of verses later, now it's Jesus and circumcision and, and, the, and the rest of the law. And so they stand up and they say that. Verse seven, Peter gets up. They decide we need to, we need to sort this out. The apostles and the elders are talking. Verse seven, at the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. 
So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we're all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. So he gets up and he speaks and he's referring back to Acts chapter 10. If you remember when we talked about that, when he went to Cornelius's house and the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit and he says that their hearts were cleansed, how? Through faith. And then he says, why in the world would we try to burden these new believers with a yoke that's so heavy that we, we've never been able to hold it up ourselves? Our ancestors, we, we, none of us have been able to live up. In fact, that's part of the purpose of the law was to point us to the need for a savior beyond ourselves. So why would we try to burden them? You know what Jesus said about his yoke, about the burden that would come on you when you serve, serve him? He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come, in, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and you're weary, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So again, if you're serving the Lord and your yoke is heavy, your burden is heavy, the yoke that you carry isn't easy, what do you know about it? It's not from Jesus. Someone else, religion, some other teaching, your, your own thought process, your own human effort has polluted it. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So if your yoke isn't easy and your burden isn't light, then you need to re-examine the yoke and the burden that you're dealing with because according to Jesus' words, that's not the one he has for you. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Verse 11, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. That's the way that people are saved, just by the grace of God. So Peter shares, and the next couple of verses that we read, Paul and Barnabas get up and they talk about the amazing things they saw and what they experienced with the Gentiles. Gentiles are being converted. And then James stands up and he begins to speak. And he says, guys, listen to me. And he refers to what, what everyone else has shared. But this is where we, we need to really pay attention because they're making a decision that affects us even right now. How will the gospel be presented? That we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. How does a person really come into relationship? Is it really as simple and as pure and as easy as trusting Jesus? That, that's, that's what they're discussing. And so people's experience, what Peter has to say about what he saw and he experienced, that's wonderful. The testimonies from Paul and Barnabas, what they saw, what they thought, what their interpretation of it was, that was all wonderful. But notice where James directs things before they make a decision. He brings things back to scripture. He takes their testimonies, he takes their experiences, and he says, you know what? That lines up with what the word of God says, and that's where the decision has to be based from. That, that's something you and I should apply. When people share experiences. They share testimonies. This is what, so this is what happened in my life. Well, this is what happened in his life. This is what happened in Aunt Thelma's life. That, that's all wonderful, but it all has to come back to what does God's word have, have to say about it. And we can't completely base things on what people experienced or what they thought or how they perceived them. This is what the early church did. It all came back to the word of God. In uh, Acts chapter two, Holy Spirit was poured out. People are running around speaking in tongues. This is just crazy mayhem. They didn't just say, hey, seems like a move of God to me. No, they went back to scripture. No, this is what was written by the prophet Joel. In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. They, it, they went back to scripture. And so in making this decision, they go back. What does God's word have to say? You're, you're, what you had to say is wonderful. Your experience, that's great. But what really makes it great is because it's an alignment with the word of God. 
And so James stands up and he shares from Amos chapter nine, we'll read it, Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 15, talking about what, what had just been shared by Peter. And he says, and this, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. Okay, what you shared, that's great, but what really makes it great, it agrees with what the prophet said, just as it is written, after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. This is one of those passages that's really easy to skim over, especially because you know, I mean, we're Gentiles, we're in, you know, whatever they decided back then, the point is we're, we're in, right? And so you, they're making a decision, uh, James gets up and he quotes some, you know, old scripture from a book that I, I really don't know a whole lot about, the book of Amos, and just kind of, yeah, 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 something about the Gentiles, and you move on. But have you ever been reading the Bible and you kind of get snagged on a word or a phrase, something you've read hundreds of times, and then something just kind of sticks out and you know something's there. When that happens, pay attention. The Holy Spirit's got something more for you to speak from that. that man, I'm just reading along. Man, something about something about that word. Something about I never noticed, I never noticed the way it said that. Well, I, that's what happened to me with this passage, because I've read this a bunch of times before, but I I never saw what I saw recently looking at this passage, that he says that the, I'm gonna rebuild the tabernacle of David. Why is he gonna rebuild the tabernacle of David? So that the Gentiles could come in. Rebuild the tabernacle of David. Tabernacle of David? That's the part that I got snagged on. Tabernacle, tabernacle of Moses I'm familiar with. I know about that. Mount Sinai gave the instructions, the, all the curtains and the rods and all, all the stuff you got to plow through when you read that portion of the Bible. I'm familiar with that. I know about Solomon's temple. I know about that. What, why didn't he mention one of those? Why, why specifically did the Holy Spirit quicken this passage of scriptures? There's other ones that mention the Gentiles being brought into the kingdom of God. What, why did the Holy Spirit quicken this one on this subject in this moment that mentions the tabernacle of, of David? You know, when you, we're talking about these tabernacles, there's some typology or some symbolism, foreshadowing that happens with, with these, these tabernacles. And when it talks about the tabernacle of Moses, if he would have said the tabernacle of Moses there, it's Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given and all the instructions and all the rules and all the regulations and circumcision and, and all the different things that people had to do, being clean and unclean and all of that, that all of that would have been included in the tabernacle of Moses. All of the rev regulations that went along with that tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, there was the Holy of Holies, which was like the innermost room. And in that innermost room was the Ark of the Covenant, right? And the Ark of the Covenant, that's like the, the epicenter of the presence of God, the power of God. And there was a time in Israel's history, the end of the judges, before King Saul became king, that the Israelites were going to battle against the Philistines and they, they didn't like their chances. First Samuel chapter four, they didn't like their chances. So they thought to themselves, you know what? We'd really swing the odds into our favor is if we, we got the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle of Moses 
and we took it into battle with us. Then like, I mean, of course we're going to win, right? You know, the story that they, they, so they, that's what they do. They take the Ark of the Covenant, they carry it with them in battle against the Philistines. But instead of winning, like they thought they were actually defeated. And the Philistines took the Ark back with them and they put it in the temple of a false God, this false God named Dagon and the, they come back in the morning. You remember this story? He's, the story? The, this statue, this idol has fallen down before the Ark of the Covenant. It's an amazing story. Come back again. It's fallen and it's, it's broken. And they get to a point where this Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God among them is causing so many problems. People are breaking out with tumors. You can study it. It's very interesting. Hemorrhoids, all, all kinds of crazy things are happening with this. These people, they say, you know, we've got to get this thing out of here. Get this Ark of the Covenant. We stole it from them. Give it back. They put it on a cart and they send it back. And so Israel gets, gets the, the Ark of the Covenant back. Do you know that the Ark of the Covenant never returned to the tabernacle of Moses? After they took it out in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it never returned to the tabernacle. In fact, it stayed in this place called Kiriath-Jerim for years, for the entire reign of, of King Saul. And then there was a point in time when David became king. He said, you know, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to have God's presence here. I'd like to go and get, get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it here to, to Jerusalem. And so in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, that they go and they try to get it, but you know, they, they do it the wrong way and they're bringing it back and somebody gets killed in the process. So they say, you know what, let's pause this. Let's not, maybe this isn't a good idea. And so they put the, the Ark of the Covenant at a guy's house named Obed-Edom and it stays there for a while. And then a couple of chapters later, David wants to take another, another run at it. In 1 Chronicles chapter 16, he goes and this time successfully, does it the right way, brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem and he's, he's built a tent for it. He's built a tabernacle and they, they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle. And that's the tabernacle of David where the Ark of the Covenant was. So at this point in history, there were, there were two tabernacles in Israel. There was the tabernacle of Moses from Mount Sinai it was still in operation. People are still sacrificing there. The altar is still there. People are still going through the motions, but the glory of God wasn't there anymore. The presence of God wasn't there anymore. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when they took, took the, the Ark of the Covenant away, that's what it said, Ichabod, that the glory of God has departed. And so it's still in operation. People still going through the motions, but there's no presence. The glory of God isn't there. There's, there's no power in just going through motions and, and trying to prove themselves. Meanwhile, the, the, the glory of God, the power of God's in, in the tabernacle, in the tabernacle of David. Let, let me read you from 2 Chronicles chapter 1. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Solomon, son of David, took firm control of his kingdom, for the Lord his God was with him and made him very powerful. Solomon called together all the leaders of Israel, the generals and captains of the army, the judges, all the political and clan leaders. Then he led the entire assembly to the place of worship in Gibeon, for God's tabernacle was located there. This was the tabernacle that Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the wilderness. David had already moved the Ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the tent he had prepared for it in Jerusalem. But the bronze altar 
made by Bezalel, son of Uri, and grandson of Hur was there at Gibeon in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. So Solomon and the people gathered in front of it to consult the Lord. There in front of the tabernacle, Solomon went up to the bronze altar in the Lord's presence and sacrificed 1,000 burnt offerings on it. I'm reading that just to establish what I've just shared with you, that when they wanted to bring an animal sacrifice, the altar was at one tabernacle. But the Ark of the Covenant was at another one. And so James quotes from Amos that talks about the Gentiles being brought in, not, not to the tabernacle of Moses, but the tabernacle of, of David. And at that tabernacle, it was established, it was dedicated by sacrifices. There was bloodshed at the dedication. But after that, it was a sacrifice of praise. It was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It was joy and singing. He made instruments that they just, they just worshiped. It was initiated by, by blood sacrifice, but after that, they praised God and they, they worshiped and they just celebrated having the presence and, and the glory of God. And it's a picture of the covenant that you and I get to be a part of. Really, David was a type of Christ. So the tabernacle he built was a picture of the new covenant church that we get, that we get to enjoy, that we get to not by our own efforts and our sacrifices and our striving and our straining come into the presence of God. That when we try to do that, it's empty form, it's empty religion, there's, there's no power there. But when we rely on a sacrifice that's already been made, that began this covenant, and we just worship and enjoy the presence of God, that's the covenant that you and I have been brought, brought into. I wanna to read to you from Hebrews chapter 12. This passage to me, that, that understanding of what James quoted from Amos sheds new light on what's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, he says, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to the blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore for they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so, and so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. He says, you haven't come to that mountain. It's not just talking about a mountain. Mountain was a picture of the covenant that was given to them on the mountain. It's talking about Mount Sinai. He says the commands were given there. It says, for they could not endure what was commanded. Instructions and regulations. Like, how in the world can I live, live in line with all of those rules and all of those regulations? I, I cannot endure. It says, you haven't come in Christ in this new covenant. We haven't come to that mountain. Verse 15. But you have come to Mount Zion, which is actually where David set up his tabernacle the city of David, Mount Zion. So it's comparing where these two tabernacles were located. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. 
that you haven't come to a list of regulations, you haven't come to an empty form of religion, that real, real Christianity isn't coming to religion, it's coming to Jesus. It's coming to a mediator of the new covenant. It's coming into relationship provided by the blood of Jesus, and it says that this blood has something to say. It says that this blood speaks something, and what it has to say, it's speaking something better than that of Abel's, which is a strange thing to say. I'm talking about blood speaking. It's referring back to Genesis chapter four, that when Cain killed his brother Abel and God approached Cain and said, what have you done? What did you do? He said, the blood of your brother cries out. It's calling out to me. What was that blood crying out? What was it calling out to the Lord? It, it was calling out for justice. It was calling out something needs to be done. Someone has to pay. Someone has to be punished. What happened isn't right. Someone needs to pay the price for what happened to me. But the blood that speaks over your life, the blood that speaks over my life, it says it says something different. It says something better. Not you have to pay. You need to justify yourself. It speaks that someone else has paid the price, that it's already been dealt with. And now we're free because this covenant was already established on the blood that you and I are free to bring the uh, sacrifice of praise, an offering of thanksgiving, to celebrate in the presence of God with joy because what he has rebuilt for our benefit wasn't the tabernacle of Moses. He rebuilt for you the tabernacle of David where the altar's been removed, but the presence of God, the glory of God remains for us to fellowship and enjoy and to sing his praises and to know him. That's what's available to us by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus speaks. It speaks over you. It doesn't call out your faults and your flaws and point out your inadequacies. It's speaking over you the blessing of God. It's calling out that you're his son, you're his daughter, that you're clean, that you're forgiven, that you're filled with the spirit, that you're his child, that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you're gifted, that you're talented, that you're anointed, that the, the blood of Jesus speaks that over us in the new covenant. And, and what I wanna do this morning is I wanna receive, receive communion together. In fact, I'm gonna ask those, the men to go ahead and pass this out. You can hold on to it for, for just a moment. In David's, in David's tabernacle, and there, there wasn't an altar, but he had musical instruments fashioned in form and appointed people to lead and worship, to declare the praises of God, to celebrate, to celebrate his presence. And so in just a couple of minutes, Pastor Jonathan, the band, they're gonna lead us. I wanna take some time this morning to do exactly that, to bring a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, to, to enjoy the presence of God, to celebrate this covenant, this tabernacle that we get to enjoy. I want to read from 1 Corinthians. I'll read this, this portion of scripture from 1 Corinthians, but you can just hold on to your, the communion elements and you can just receive them on your own when we begin to worship the Lord in a few moments. If you want to receive them on your own, if you want to receive them with your family. And when we begin to worship, I'm going to encourage you, if you'd be so bold, to come to the altar. Just begin to lift your voice. 
church to, to come forward and bring a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Let's press into the presence of God and just celebrate songs of joy, songs of thanks. Let's begin to lift our voice before him. And as we do that, you can receive communion. But let me read this to you. It says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. As often as you drink it, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. That we have a job to do of proclaiming, of announcing, that we are supposed to be speaking about the blood while the blood speaks about you. That we proclaim about the blood of Jesus simultaneously the blood is proclaiming things over you the blood is speaking over you forgiven righteous set apart holy his banner over you is love as we take communion as we worship the lord every other voice that's tried to speak over you not good enough not worthy flawed faulted messed up failure addicted Whatever it is, whether it's from something someone else spoke over you, something you've come up with in your own mind, something the, the enemy's whispered in your ear long enough that you believe it, every other voice, let, let the voice of the blood have the final say over your life this morning. To silence every other voice, tune your ear to a voice that speaks something better. I love the way it says, it speaks a better word. It speaks something better. What, what, what does anyone else speak over your life? It speaks something better. It's, it's, it's unmatchable in what it has to say about you. It's unmatchable in what it says about your potential, your calling, your gifted. It's, it's unmatched. It's better. It's better. Beyond, beyond what you could ask or imagine, the blood speaks something better. Clear away every other voice and allow the blood to speak. Well, that's this week's message. Thanks for joining us. To stay connected with us throughout the week, make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook. You can also watch previous week's services on our YouTube page.